Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. I'm loving the adventures with Jesus. I don't know about you. I uh, hope you're getting on really well with your Easter playlist this last week. Um, it's been great to rekindle my acquaintance with new and old songs alike. I'd love to hear from you. Which song do you think should be on my playlist that you think isn't at the moment? I'd love to think about that before we uh, go this morning. Transforming truth. Truth that changes us. Truth that touches our lives that means we are never the same again. And we've been on this journey of truth, haven't we? That uh, we, we, we began with the truth that God made us in his image and before anything else that can be said of us, we are unique and special and precious as people that have the very breath of God within us. How cool is that? You've got the very breath of God in you. However marred and broken and messed up you might feel. In fact, however marred and broken and messed up you actually are, the Bible begins with this glorious truth that we're made in his image. And then we looked at the fall and the catastrophic reality that as human beings we walked out on God. We thought we knew a better way, a different way, a, day that would, a way that would give us greater satisfaction and greater fulfillment. And we have spent the rest of history trying to get back to what we lost in those early days. And if I'd have been God, and maybe if you'd have been God at that point, you would have, uh, I would have abandoned the world. And if they want to do their own thing, well, leave them to it. And I would have rolled the earth into outer space and left them to it. So it's a good job I'm not uh, God, isn't it? And I think you might have done the same too. Well, if that's the way they want to be, then I'll leave them to it. But quite the contrary. We sang earlier, didn't we? The reckless love of God that pursues us and chases us down. And we've been following that story that God didn't leave us on our own, but we have the truth of revelation. God continued to speak to us. How amazing was that? And then we had the perhaps even greater truth that not only does God continue to speak to us, but he continues to be involved in the world that he had created. And we looked at providence, the way that God is still at work, involved in his world, in all the mess, in all the brokenness here and now. And then most remarkable of all last week, that God didn't just speak and doesn't just remain involved at a distance, but God incarnated himself, took on flesh and lived here among us. And today we reach the ultimate conclusion of that journey in a way that not only did he take on flesh, but we will see in these moments that he took on every experience of what it has now meant to be human as we look at the cross. An incredible act of solidarity with us. Today is called Passion Sunday for all of you that follow the liturgical calendar. But you knew that. 
I can tell by the nervous giggles. And Passion Sunday is the Sunday, and we are bang on time as good Baptists, uh, the Sunday when we particularly think about the passion of Jesus. His passion towards us, his love towards us, but that's not what it originally meant. Passion came from the word suffering, the sufferings of Jesus. So then next week, uh, we're into Palm Sunday, and then the week after, buzzing for it already, Easter Sunday, when we celebrate the resurrection. Next Sunday, uh, it's going to be fab. Simon and Heather are going to help lead us as we think about uh, the way we encounter God in our brokenness, in our stillness. Uh, there's that a lot of talk recently about Silent Saturday, that, that moment when all all seems to have gone wrong when all hope is lost, but resurrection is just around the corner. How do we encounter God in our ordinary, everyday lives? So that's all next week. This morning, though, we will focus in on the cross of Christ. And there will be nothing new today. I'm not going to say anything today that I haven't said uh, however many times I've said it. And if you go out this morning and think, well, there's nothing new in that today, then I will have done my job. Because that's the point. It's a bit like when you come to communion and go, well, I'm fed up of bread and wine. Why don't we try chicken and rice? You see, the bread and the wine is the point. The cross is the point. And I want you to come on a journey with me that every now and again, I think we should make. Will you come with me and leave the city behind and go up to the hill and move as close as you dare and I invite you to stand and watch and to ask yourself the question, what do I see? What do I see? The people stood watching. For these next 15, 20 minutes, I invite us to stand watching. Do you see the horror? Crucifixion is the most barbaric, inhumane, agonizing death that human beings arguably have ever devised. The word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. A, a crucified man would die of asphyxiation. You survived on the cross by lifting yourself up to give room for your lungs to breathe before the pain in your wrists would cause you to collapse. And you would repeat that cycle until you died suffocating and agonizing death. Very occasionally, women were crucified, but often with their face towards the cross. For in some weird twist, the brutality was understood to be too much to see that agony on a woman's face. Sometimes naked men would hang for several days. And the loincloth that we see in crucifixions is just for our own protection, our own sensibilities. There was no covering. They were naked as they died. 
taunted by their accusers. Often people were crucified, not up high as we might imagine it, but often the crucifixion took place at eye level. You could look your accusers in the eyes. A victim could do nothing to retaliate except fill the air black and blue with cursing or spitting or urinating or defecating. Sometimes their tongues would be removed to stop them cursing passers-by. It was a disgusting scene which robbed and degraded the person in every possible way to do. The scene was so grotesque, the scourging and crucifying so severe that Isaiah prophesied this of Jesus. I haven't got it. Isaiah 52 verse 14 says this, Just as that there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. The Son of God came to earth as a human being and we so disfigured him that he no longer looked like a human being. Inevitably, the cross is something we become too familiar with, too comfortable, too nice. We use it in many ways that are appropriate as icons to remind us in our worship. But it was horrific and grotesque. And every once in a while, I think we need to go to that place once again. I get too comfortable with it all. I don't know about you. It's not a comfortable place right now with the thoughts that fill our minds. But I make it too comfortable. I make it too easy to reflect upon and to see it as something nice and loving and miss something of the depth of the violence and of the horror. And it's really important that we face the horror because the horror speaks volumes about our mess. Do you see our mess? If we could do that to Jesus then for that reason alone, the cross reveals the incredible mess that humanity is in. If God became a human being, lived a human life, a perfect life of complete goodness, of that reckless love, that unconditional love that comes towards us, and we killed him in the most diabolical way. That's what sin did. That's what sin does. It destroys and disfigures and distorts. That's what sin does. It crushes and wounds and breaks and kills. And the Bible says that if we claim to be without sin, we what? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not within us. You cannot look at the cross and conclude that we're okay And you cannot look at the cross and conclude, do you know what? I'm okay. Because the sin that bred that moment lives in me. The selfishness that grew out of control that ended up outside a city wall those years ago, that selfishness is in me. For all have sinned and fallen short. Of the glory, the wonder, the majesty, 
the perfection, the beauty, the horror. And you see in the horror the mess, therefore, that we are in. Much more. You see, for all the horror of the cross, there was so much more going on. For the careful observer, at different points in the story, we are reminded that even more is going on than the simple horror of the crucifixion itself. Father, if you are willing, take this cup. Is that a cup of green tea? Earl Grey? Even a caramel macchiato? No. But you knew that. Just like Jesus the rabbi would have known what the cup meant. You see, if you are a rabbi and Jesus was a rabbi, you would know the Old Testament inside out. In fact, you would memorize the whole of the Old Testament. Sometimes we struggle with the first five books, just the names of them, let alone what's in them, but the whole Old Testament. And when they talked about the cup, they knew what the Old Testament motif for the cup was all about. The cup was the cup of judgment. The cup was the consequence of our rebellion. The the cup was symbolic of the fruit of our sin. The cup was everything that was degrading and disgusting, all that stood opposed to God. Jesus would take that cup when he died. On the cross. So much more than the crucifixion that almost ironically pales into insignificance. Jesus would carry the weight, the judgments, the punishment, the pain, the consequence, the fruit of this world's wickedness. So much so that Paul would say, God made him who had no sin carry sin? No, no, no. Wear some sin? Experience some sin? No. Be come. He that knew no sin would be sin for us. That's what Jesus agreed to do. And only that was enough for the mess we had made. Only after hanging for six hours in the darkness, in excruciating agony, only after carrying the weight of the world, crushing his soul, sin wraps around him as the Father turns his face away. Every lie, every lust, every cheat, every adultery, Every greed, every wrong word, bad word, hurtful word, it's all Jesus can feel now. It's all he knows. The heart-wrenching cry of loneliness would pierce the air. My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, Lamech, Sabachthani. My God, my God, where are you? I can't find you. Where are you? can't feel you anymore. He's utterly alone. Sure, he'd experienced some kind of human loneliness. He'd been alone on the hillside or early in the morning or awake through the night, but never like this. 
His Father had always been with him. From eternity to eternity, the Trinity that we looked at, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they had always been together, but now suddenly the very heart of God had been ripped open. And Jesus experienced what he had never, ever experienced before, the loneliness away from his Father all alone. It was what he had feared the most. Pain so much deeper than the nails or the agony of his lungs. Father, where are you? Where are you? Who, who am I now without you? Goes to the heart of our identity as human beings. The despair darker than the sky. The two that had always been one are now two. Jesus always with God, now without him. The Trinity dismantled the heart of God Ripped open. Jesus, how cool is that? Jesus, without God, that you might find. Do you see the so much more? And remember, the cross was a choice. Do you see the choice? Do you see the choice? This is what God chose to do. The cross didn't take Jesus by surprise. God in heaven was not caught off guard by the way that we treated him. It was not a surprise that things went from good to bad to awful. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. They did wicked men, what you had decided, what you had chosen. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 2 says it again. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God the Father and God the Spirit were not thinking halfway through the Gospels that it's all gone terribly wrong. They are not anxious that their PR department didn't communicate properly what Jesus was all about and now people were turning on him and they didn't see that coming. They had seen it coming before even the creation of the world. The Bible tells us before the world was even made, God in his love towards us had planned how he would sort it out, how he would put things right. And so Jesus would say, look, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd chooses. He lays down his life. It is his choice. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Not Pilate, not the soldiers, not the Jewish council, not the Pharisees. No one. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. If Jesus had a choice, then more amazing than the choice of Bethlehem, for his birth, or a manger for his bed, or a peasant company for his social standing, or a hated race for his ethnicity, was the choice of a cross for his death. Because it was nothing less than that kind of death. But that kind of reality of sin wrapped around him that could mop up the mess of your life and mine. And so hours before his death, Jesus longed for there to be another way. Who wouldn't have? Please, Father, if it's possible. If it's possible, can we work something else out? 
Is there another way? In such agony of soul that he sweated drops of blood. And the father said no. Was the father playing games with his only beloved son? No, the father loved the son more than you and I have ever loved anyone. If there was another way, their love for each other would have found it. But at the eleventh hour, they agreed what they had agreed before eternity began. At the final moment, they agreed what had always been the plan. I'll do it. Amazing love. How can this be? One night we were up through the small hours with one of our children uh, who was in agony with their stomach. We called the doctor who came and you know what it's like. 95% of the time you expect the doctor to say, "Mm, nothing more, it's just a stomach bug, it'll all be better in the morning. But within 30 minutes we were in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. There was something about the response of that doctor that alerted us to the seriousness of the situation. You cannot travel past the cross, and be not alerted to the seriousness of the predicament that we are in and the lengths to which God has come to rescue us. But the trouble is, for most of the time, most of the world has just muddled on by We can act like the mess is everybody else's problem, everybody else's responsibility. But as we heard some moments ago, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The world over is muddling along. The liberalism of our world tells us that maybe through education or through the ability to choose whatever we like that we will cure our malaise. Marxism advocates a revolutionary solution. Many ethical traditions suggest a moral solution. Some religions offer an escapist solution. Capitalism offers an economic solution and so on and so forth. And during time, but less so now, science was deemed to offer a scientific solution. If only we worked harder, longer, stronger. If only we had more time and saw more advances, then somehow we'd clear up all this mess. The cross says no, 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 not just to our generation, but to every generation. No, not just this time, but for all time. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. All our good ideas just muddling along. So finally, response. Do you see your response? The cross demands a response. It it demands in some way for us to think or do something. Uh, Some might be tempted to respond like Pilate, to kind of wash our hands of the situation, to to, to say, well, it's got nothing to do with me. That was a a long time ago in a faraway place, and it's not really my issue, and it's not really my problem. But he was there on that cross for you and for me. He was there for your sin and mine. It was his love for you that put him there. We can wash our hands, but he was there for us. Or we can be like Judas. Judas who'd betrayed Jesus and in his sense of betrayal seemed so overwhelmed by his failure and his mistakes that he concluded that there was for him no hope. Judas is a tragic story. 
He decided that there was no hope. And people still decide that. Despite the reality of the cross, people still feel overwhelmed with guilt and shame. People still feel that their sin is too great, that their failure is too fatal, and that there is need somehow, that, that they are somehow, sorry, beyond the ability to be rescued and redeemed. And people might not go off and commit suicide like Judas did, but many people go off and just hide away. They hide away on the inside with the thoughts that what they've done can't somehow be rescued. What, what, they, what they feel about themselves, they're not quite worthy enough to be part of what God did there on that cross. Yet when Jesus said it is finished, it was for all time and for all people. Amen? All time and all people. And the cross doesn't just deal with your sin. But it deals with what you face because of other people's sins. We suffer, don't we, because of our own sin. But we also find ourselves suffering because of the sins of others. The consequence of their sin and ours, the Bible says, was placed on Jesus at the cross. The cross is for the sinner and the sinned against. For the perpetrator and the victim, the abuser and the abused. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. So whether you've sinned, which you have, and whether you've been sinned against, which you have, it's all covered by the cross. Beautifully covered. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The only difference, isn't it, between Judas and Peter, who both failed in a similar kind of betraying manner, is that Peter hung around long enough to see the reality of the cross. I'm asking, pleading maybe with you, that if you've written yourself off in some way, to hang around long enough, to get close enough again, to see the reality of the cross. The women's devotion was rewarded as we think about what our response might be. There at the cross, the women were there and Jesus in that last act of love and care and compassion gave Mary, his mother, a new son. Their simple devotion was rewarded. I've been thinking quite a lot about the the themes of the women over these last few weeks in our community gathering on Monday. I was really struck again by that story of uh, Mary anointing Jesus' body for burial when she used that really expensive Calvin Klein stuff. And, 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 and the people in the room were kind of going, well, like, whoa, that's, whoa, that's a lot of money. And, and I guess like me, you've also been tempted to think, oh, that was a lot of money. Was that a good use of all that money? Surely it could have been given to the poor. And then as I've reflected on that this last week, I've thought, for those who know who Jesus is and understood what he was about to do, was there any perfume that would have been too expensive to anoint him with? Honestly. And what I was struck by with Mary's devotion is she did it in a room with a load of hostile men. And these women found their way to the cross in the midst of a hostile crowd. Their public devotion was rewarded. And I find myself challenged 
about my own public devotion to Jesus. Joseph and Nicodemus were the same. They'd been disciples in secret. Is there somewhere where you're a disciple in secret? You hope to goodness sake no one finds out you're a Christian. But something about the death of Jesus caused these secret believers to go, no, I can't live like this anymore. I'm going to step into the open, to step into the light. And they took his body down. They went to Pilate and asked for permission and so on. And then lastly, think with me about the centurion. A hard-hearted, ruthless man. He'd supervised countless crucifixions, watched many men die. He'd even broken their legs to speed death up. Yet something about Jesus reached his heart on this violent hill of death. He'd never heard Jesus preach or watched him heal. He'd never followed him around the villages, never watched him still the wind or multiply the leaves. The only, the lows, the only thing this centurion had ever done was to see Jesus die. And something about that moment caused him to declare what you and I need to declare with him, what people down through the ages need to declare themselves. Surely this man was and is the Son of God. Maybe some of you have never nailed it. And you're coming up to Easter and you've never sealed the deal. You've never quite got yourself to that place where you say, actually, there's nothing more. I can muddle on in the mess or I can put my trust in what Jesus has done for me. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And maybe this day, this moment is your moment to say yes I'm putting my trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The centurion had no fancy words. He had no religious language. He had no great background of Jewish faith. But he said, that man Jesus has come from God And he's the real deal. What happened in that moment is the real thing. And I'm putting my trust in him. And what's our response when we look to the cross? Are we like Pilate? It's nothing to do with me. Judas, I'm too messed up. There's no hope for me. The woman committed to go to the cross. Joseph, it's time to break cover. I need to do something about this. Or the centurion, where it suddenly all makes sense. Who do I, who do we relate with? Who am I in this story of the cross? Where do I fit? Ask yourself, look, where are you in this story? Where do you fit.